0: How's everybody doing? It's beautiful out there, isn't it? Yeah, it's so fun driving here today. Oh, I love it. We should just go outside and have church this morning. How's that sound? <laughs> I'll tell you what, God's here, and I can just feel even just just the, the warmth and the hotness of His presence. And, you know, people come here a lot and just say, you know, I, I find myself crying, weeping. Um, or I sense the Holy Spirit here because a lot of times we cry, that's the Holy Spirit pricking our heart. And we're like, just what's going on here? And I'll, I'll tell you what's going on here. It really has very little to do with what's going on up here on the stage. It has everything to do with the Spirit of God that's in this community. And it's just such a privilege to be a part of, of uh, this community of people. So thank you. Um, Barry and Dave, come on up. These guys just went to Haiti. Remember that? They were up here maybe a couple weeks ago. They're going to do some uh, work on the wells there, giving the Haitians water. And uh, they're back. And I'll tell you, it's one of the things I love about this. I was thinking about this last night. You know, when that whole disaster occurred in Haiti over a year ago, you know, it's like Christians flock there. And uh, I love that. But I love it that even over a year later. We're still going there, you know, and it's not kind of like the popular thing to do anymore. And, uh, guys, tell us about this experience you guys had. Who wants to go first? first.
1: (laughs) All right. Um, this is something that, uh, put, God put on my heart about three years ago and Dave's heart about two years ago. So, um, we've been going there, you know, for the last three years, um, the one thing I can tell you is your prayers that you guys have been giving us throughout these uh, adventures that we do have just been uh, phenomenal. I mean, we know that God's with us. We know that your prayers are with us, and we know that that without you, his, you know, get dedicating everything to his glory, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. But um, just a quick story that I have. Um, we were sitting alongside of a roadside, nice, hot, sunny day, sitting in the shade trying to have a little lunch, and this... Uh, Haitian rides up on his bicycle and he starts talking to us. Well, Our translator said, well, there's a couple of wells up in a village that we didn't even know about. So um, just right there, the power of God, he crossed our paths that day. If we hadn't been sitting alongside that road and this guy hadn't been riding his bike to his farming community, which was miles from his house, it was unbelievable, um, we would have never known these wells were here. So at a well that um, we ended up fixing, I kind of honored this man and let the Haitian people know that without God guiding this guy and God guiding us alongside that road, we would have never found these wells.
2: So, I mean, praise God for that. That's awesome. That's awesome, Barry. Cool. The, um, you know, we, to, we kind of tried to pick a little golden nugget out of the trip to, to share and 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 I couldn't narrow it down to one, so I'll tell you two. Uh, first off, Barry already mentioned the fact that that how important this prayer is. And, and uh, we found that out ourselves when we were we were kind of headed back home toward the end of one day. I was, it was actually kind of getting kind of late in the day, and we thought, well, we're going to stop at this one well along the way, and we're just going to be the, you know, big, tough American dudes, and we're going to bang this thing out real quick before it gets dark on us. And and the big tough American guys get scared, and uh, so so we stop alongside the, the road, and we just jump on this thing, and we we tear at this thing like a you know like a just a bunch of madmen, and um, we forgot to take the time before the uh, before we started working to just gather around the well and pray, which we always did, but for whatever reason we didn't this time, and, and that thing just ended up whooping us up one side and down the other, and, and we. <laughs> We never did finish it that day. We ended up having to, to undo all the work that we did and uh, cap it off, excuse me, and then come back the next day and, and start over uh, appropriately with uh, a little prayer. And then, of course, we clicked it right off. So so the power of prayer is pretty huge, uh, you know, not only uh, what we were doing, but obviously from from where you guys are at. So then the other thing is that, you know, we talk about these these little opportunities, and, and some of them seem kind of small, if you will, um, you'll see that, uh, you know, there's, there's a well that maybe just needs a little minor repair, and, and it's kind of not a big deal, really, although it is to them. it's From our perspective, it's kind of a small job. But we, had, we were coming back the last day. We are way out in the sticks. I don't even know where we are. And, and we're coming back, and there's, people are flagging us down uh, on the side of the road um, to to stop because they had heard that we were down the road at this other place. And... This guy flags us down and says, hey, there's a well back here, there's a well back here, and they're literally pulling the brush out of the way um, to get at this thing. And this thing had been broken for for not like three months or four months like a lot of these wells. This thing had been broken for eight years, and there had been nobody there to fix it. And, and so we had an opportunity to stop there and, and fix this thing and help these folks that were, again, they were literally, literally out in the middle of no place, and they had no water nearby them for eight years. And and some of the stuff that passes for water, and I don't know if the slides are running or whatever, but some of the stuff that passes for water for these folks down there is just horrible. And, and so the, the work we're doing there is is not only valuable from the from the human side, but like Barry said, the, the way to touch these people is is you know through that work. And, and it's just a it's just a huge opportunity for us. It's just great.
0: That's awesome. You guys thinking maybe. Uh... About doing this next year? Absolutely. Do you want to go with more than just two of you? Absolutely. Great. Are you guys thinking along those lines? Like maybe we get a team? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be sweet. I would, I'd like for some of you guys to start praying about that. Um, that that would really be awesome. I love it that you guys are dreaming dreams of the kingdom of heaven. And not just dreaming, but then courageously stepping out in those dreams that God put on your heart. And I can see just like those water, the water bubbling up, something bubbling up here. That leads us there to help them. And uh, Barry, I I remember that time you shared, just Maim Kaim, living water. And, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you give a cup of cold water to be able to tell people about the living water. Proud of you guys. Bless God. Thanks, you guys. Stuff's going on all over this community right now. It's just fun. All right, we're going to step into God's Word this morning. And, you know, I don't know if you guys, like, listen to me when I say these kind of things, okay? But we were supposed to be in Genesis by now. Did anybody know that? Like, and then I, I got side to and we're going to do John chapters 2 through 5 here, um, which we did. And some of you are like, why aren't we staying in John? Well, I said, we're going to just go through John chapter 2 through 5. Then we went to Romans 6 because we had baptisms that one Sunday. I thought, man, this would be such a great text to preach on the Sunday we do baptisms. Um, So we did Romans 6. But the problem with Romans 6 is that you really can't jump into Romans 6 without also looking at chapter 7 and chapter 8 because they're all like this whole package, all right? And then combined with the fact that God's been putting on my heart that 2011 is this year where God's going to continue to push the the gospel and the cross deeper into our lives, bringing about change, real change. The kind of change that Christ and the gospel promises. Not that outside in, I, I, I just clean the outside, but that, that change that starts in our innermost being, in our heart, and it just works itself out. Romans 6 through 8, I don't think there's a clear uh, part of scripture that teaches how the gospel changes us, okay? So that's the game plan. So today we're in Romans 7 and I I just have to say that this is probably one of the most famous texts in the book of Romans, maybe even in the New Testament. Before we go there, I just want to say a few things. This is probably one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament. Um, Because of that, I do not want to approach this text or any text with this need to be right. Because I could be right about this text and still not have my life changed by Christ. Or I could get this text wrong and still have a life changing experience with the Savior. Okay? So don't need to be right this morning. Also, our understanding of God, our understanding of his world, and our understanding of ourselves is never based on one single text. So I want to refrain from us doing that today, that all of a sudden this is the end-all, be-all text about who we are, okay? And Romans 8 needs to fill in Romans 7. And so I want to approach this text with such humility, humility. And I, I, I want that to be every week, but especially this week. I just want to call us all right now to just humble ourselves under this text and let it fall on our hearts, not that it would inform us, but that God would use it to illuminate our hearts so it would transform us. And God, that's my prayer. I just pray right now, God, that as we place ourselves under your word, we ask your Holy Spirit, God, to just open the eyes of our heart to see your word and understand your word and apply it to our lives. That it would just plow, Lord. It would would turn up the soil in our hearts. We could see you. We could see ourselves in light of you. And we could see how we can become like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Romans 7, and I'm going to begin at verse 7. You can see the heading there, struggling with sin. <laughs> and I think that that heading is actually pretty accurate as to what this text deals with. Get ready this morning, okay? We're going to think and we're going to plow. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and it killed me. I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, it slew me. It put me to death. So then, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, it's righteous, it's good. But did that which is good then, how did that become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good. And could we say righteous and holy, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, important clause, in my sarks, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out for what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do, not want to do. this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. You tracking? This is Paul, man, this is amazing. So I found this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my innermost being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law or principle at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin and at work within my members. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. The text is about Paul's intense struggle. And you can feel kind of the pathos of his struggle. And I want us to know here, while Paul certainly struggled with things outside of himself... I'm sure Paul struggled with the world and worldliness. I'm sure Paul struggled with the enemy. I mean, he says our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and the demons and all of that. Um, this, that's not the struggle that Paul is talking about in these verses. He's talking about a struggle that's happening deep within him. It's this struggle within him with sin. And I don't know what you think of Paul. But I think you know this. That personally I have a very high opinion of Paul. I don't see him as perfect by any means. But Paul's like like a David and a a Caleb and a Joshua. I mean he's one of my heroes. Because he's lived a life so, so worthy of the gospel. So worthy of Christ. And yet here in these verses... Look at what this guy is saying. I mean, look at what he says in verse 14. He says, I'm unspiritual. I'm sold as a slave into sin. And I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago when we looked at chapter 6 where Paul says, you know what, I'm no longer a slave to sin, but, I, but now I'm a slave to righteousness. But now in chapter 7 he's saying, I'm a slave. I'm sold as into a slave into sin. And I'm left thinking, okay, Paul, you're completely contradicting yourself. What are you talking about? And then you get to verse 19, and you read verse 19, which is actually a summation of verses 14 and 15, which I don't want to read right now because it gets so confusing. I do what I don't want to do, and what I hate to do I do, and all of that. And he sums all that up again in verse 19. And It's like there's this part of Paul that wants to do good, but there's another part of him that can't do the good he so badly wants to do. It's like he's divided. It's like he's a man with two selves. It's almost as if he's split apart internally between this good self and this bad self. This Dr. Jekyll and this Mr. Hyde. And then when you get to verse 23... He describes all of this stuff going on within him between his his Jekyll and his Hyde as as this war that's just raging within him. And then he tops the whole thing off in verse 24 by saying, oh, what a wretched man that I am. So here's the question, and this is the controversy of the text. Who is this divided man? Is this Paul? Saint Paul? The apostle? And see, there are some people who read these verses and they conclude that there's no way a Christian can talk this way about himself. Especially someone like Paul. And so they conclude that, of course, Paul, though, is talking about himself. You can't, like, write that thing away. He must be talking about his life before he came to Christ. What do you think about that? Is it hard for you to imagine Paul, the Christ follower, saying the things he says in this text? I'm just going to cut through it right now. For me personally, and some of you might just get up and leave right now. This describes me. And it describes my experience as a Christian. You know what? You might say right now that you don't struggle with sin, but I do. I feel this war raging within me. You may say that you're living this victorious life in Jesus. And while I see victory in certain places, I still make my wife cry. I still hurt and let down my kids. That's a great amen. (laughs) I still fail as a pastor. I still struggle with with, with pride and self-centeredness. I still look at things I shouldn't look at. I still say things I shouldn't say. I still do things I shouldn't do. I'm a divided man. I'm a man with two selves. I still have my Mr. Hyde. But I don't want my experience to interpret any text of the Bible. I want the text to interpret the text. And as I've studied this text, this is how I see this text working. As I stated, and I think the NIV gets it right with that little subtitle heading, I think this whole text is about Paul describing this internal struggle he has with sin. Now, something I want you to see in terms of how this text works. Verses 7 through 13 are in the past tense. Verse 7 is in the past tense. Verse 8 is in the past tense. Verse 9 is in the past tense. Verse 10 is in the past tense. Verse 11, 12, and 13 are in the past tense. We need to see this because here Paul is describing his past life. And he's talking about his struggle with sin in his past life as a Pharisee. We're going to say more about this in a little bit. And you could even bracket that in your in your Bible and say, Paul describing his past life with sin as a Pharisee. Then in verses 14 through 25, Paul moves from the past tense to the present tense. So in verses 14 through 25, it's no longer I was and I did, but now it's I am and I do. So in verses 14 through 25, Paul is now speaking in the present tense as what? A Christian. Someone who's placed his life in Christ. And so in these verses, verses 14 through 25, he's speaking of his struggle with sin as a Christ follower. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're like, wait a second. I thought that when I become a Christian, this battle's over. Christ has won. My Mr. Hyde is gone. The old nature, it's gone. The new has come. And now all of a sudden we just live this victorious life in Jesus Christ. We're still divided, we still have a divided self, and all of life is a battle between these two selves but here 's the deal, and we 're going to see this in the weeks to come when you and I become a Christian, we do not move from warfare to peace. We move from fighting a losing battle to fighting a winning battle it 's a different war. We have different resources that we 're going to come to see. But the struggle before you become a Christian is a war you can't win. And the struggle you fight after you become a Christian is a battle you can't lose. And this battle is within. I'm not saying that there's not stuff out there that, that are part of the, the equation. But this is not a battle that Paul is describing with devils or the world. It's a struggle with his sin nature. As our text says in verse 5, verse 18, and verse 25, you have what most of your Bibles translate as sin nature. Some of your Bibles translate it flesh. Both of those words are a little bit misleading. In the Greek, it's the word sarks. Our sarks is essentially our Mr. Hyde. It's our fallen, sinful, deteriorated human nature, which all human beings have inherited from Adam. Our sarks is this internal predisposition towards rebellion. Our sarks is this need within us to fixate self on self. It's self obsession, it's self promotion, it's self absorption, it's self consumption, it's self exaltation, it's this sick desire within all of us to not be under God, but to be God to do it my way, to have it my way, to be my own master, to be in control of my life. Now, in Paul's former life as a Pharisee, what was his remedy? The law. I'm going to be a Torah keeper. And this is why the Pharisees were so obsessed with the law. They knew it. They memorized it. They hid it in their heart so they could obey God. Because in their minds, this was their remedy for sin. Now, when Paul's talking about law, and when we think law, we think Ten Commandments. Now, law to Paul, of course, the Ten Commandments are at the forefront of his mind. But for Paul, keeping Torah was those 613 commands found in the five books of Moses. Because they extrapolated from the first five books of Moses, 613 commands. I wanted to make copies for all of you to just see all the, all, all the laws that are there in the first five books of Moses. The problem is it took it, it was 15 pages. And I didn't want to cut down a tree to be able to hand that thing out. But, in fact, this is interesting. My, it was a year ago today that... I got off my plane in in Israel. And it was late that night, so I just went to my apartment. The next day I woke up, I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I'm in Jerusalem. And I got up. It was just a blue sky day, probably about 65 degrees. I walked from early, early morning to late at night. I mean, I was just going everywhere. One of the places I went I I went to this museum on Mount Zion, and to get in this museum, I had to pay um, a little coin or so, and there was an Orthodox Jew sitting there. I don't know if you know what an Orthodox Jew even is. I mean, uh, we don't see a lot of those here in Grand Rapids, but those are the guys with the shaved heads, the long side curls, uh, the little box on their forehead the thing wrapped around their arms, the them because we, we we put the law on our foreheads and we write it around our arms. I mean, they take that stuff that seriously. And he's got this little book in front of him. It's obviously probably in Hebrew. And I ask him, so what are you doing? He's like, uh, I'm memorizing the Talmud. Really? What are you doing that for? He's like, the Talmud, he explained that whole thing to me, said, these are the rules, the rules that help us... Th- keep the rules of the Bible so it's like if you have one commandment in the Bible you have like 13 or 14 or 15 other commands on how you got to keep that one rule and he's memorizing it and I'm like why are you doing this and he just said well because that's what every Jew does we have to know God's law so well so we can obey it so well and then he said something to me that was Shocking. He said, we do this so that God doesn't punish us. And it's not just for our sin, but it's for the world's sin. And I looked at him and I said, you're kidding me. You are responsible for my sin? He said, yeah, we're Jews. We are a light to the nations. We are a kingdom of priests. And it's not just for our sin are we responsible, but we're responsible for for your sin, The world's sin. And the craziest thing is, this whole conversation is taking place in a Holocaust museum. And so with all the sensitivity I had, I said, so are you telling me that Jews are responsible for this? And he said, yeah, we are. And he said, I can tell you something a lot worse than the Holocaust. It's a Jew who doesn't know Torah and keep it. I felt this weight on this guy. Just, oh. And this treadmill of, we got to do this and we got to perform it. and We got to perfect it. And if we blow it, not only are we going to get punished, but the world. But you know what else I felt in him? Arrogance. Because he really believed they could do it. This is Paul, the Pharisee. And see, Paul never, as a Pharisee, would say, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. But Paul the Pharisee would say, I, Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to Torah keeping, I am blameless. But here's the deal. When you and I are in the dark, we can't see ourselves, can we? I mean, how many times have I gotten out of bed in the morning and I make my way in the, in the dark to the bathroom and just kind of flippantly turn the, turn the light on, it's like all of a sudden I see myself in the mirror, it's like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's like nasty. <laughs> and sometimes it's even a little bit traumatic because you're like thinking to yourself, I didn't realize I could look this bad, you know? That's what happens... When the light goes on You see the cracks You see the lines You see the ugliness The nastiness And you know what This is exactly what happens to Paul Paul thinks he's going around Perfecting himself And producing a righteousness That he can then offer to God And say alright God Now I know you like me Now I know you accept me Now you need to bless me And then all of a sudden Boom! On that Damascus way That light is so bright, it blinds him. And he describes that light later as the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that's in the face of Christ. And see, that light, it it, it shone into him and not only for the first time could he see God for who God was in all His brightness, but that light illuminated his heart. So for the first time, Paul could see Paul. And what does Paul see? Verses 14 through 25. He sees this divided man. He for the first time sees his Mr. Hyde. Something that Pharisee could never see. And for the first time, Paul can say, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Can you say that today? Can you see yourself? See, because what I want us to know is that seeing our sin and being able to say about ourselves what Paul says about himself in verses 14 through 25, that is not the mark of spiritual immaturity. That is the mark of a a mature believer. Because the closer you and I get to the light, the more we're going to see Cracks, the brokenness, the sin, and the evil that's in all of us. And I think C.S. Lewis said it so well when he said, you know, you ask Adolf Hitler if he was a bad man, he'd say, No. You ask Lincoln if he was a bad man, and he'd say, To such a great degree. And then he says, you know, common sense just tells us that the better you really are, the worse you feel to be. And the worse you really are, the better you feel to be. Think about that. And see, if you and I read verses 14 through 25 and we say a mature Christian doesn't talk this way, well, I'll be honest with you, that's frightening to me. Because what it probably means is that you don't see yet the holiness of God. I mean, I drove here this morning. I looked at that brilliant sun, pure. My eyes could hardly look at it too long. God is so much more pure and bright and holy than even that little sun. And it probably also tells me that you can't see the sinfulness of sin. Your sin. How bad you really are. And that sin. That's not out there. It's not in some group of people. In some bad people. But we're the good ones. That sin is in you. And it's in me. In fact two times in this text. In verses 17 and 20. Paul says that sin that dwells within me. It's not out there. It's not something outside of me. It's not something caused by some devil. Sin makes its home in me. And your sin makes its home in you. And so don't pretend that it's something outside of you. And don't make light of it and and try to make it smaller than it is. Have some guts to see the sinfulness of your sin. I mean Jesus made this so clear in Romans 7 when they're talking about cleaning the outside of the cup which is what pharisees love to do, what religious people love to do, what a lot of Christians love to do. We love to get the outside really clean, but Jesus says, you know what? That's not where sin is. It's not on the outside. Inside is what Jesus says. It says Jesus says what comes out of a man this is what makes him unclean, for from, what, from, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. See, and the closer we get to God, the closer we get to the light of God, the light of the gospel, the light of Christ, the more we're going to see all our guile, our self-centeredness, our pride. We're going to see our Mr. Hyde. And I'll tell you, for me personally, it is like the bathroom experience. It's traumatic. I mean, just yesterday even, if you could have been at our house At 10 a.m. in the morning, and you saw it, it would have been traumatic to you. It was. And I'll tell you where it all ended in our own boiler room in our basement, where our whole family just got in a circle. And I started by saying, Your dad's a sinner, and your mom's a sinner, and Gabe, you're a sinner, and Bennett, you're a sinner. And Kate, you're a sinner. And we just met with the Lord. And had one of the richest times we've had as a family. It's traumatic for Paul. I just picture this guy. Like this Orthodox Jew. Just thinking, he's so good. I'm, I'm keeping Torah. I'm a Pharisee, a Pharisee. I'm exceeding even all my classmates. And then all of a sudden, Boom! The light of God shows up in his life and he's blinded. You know what? You see it throughout scripture. You see it with all the spiritual greats. You see it with Job. Listen to what Job says in Job 42. He says, my eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Daniel says the same thing in Daniel 10 verse 8. After he gets this glorious vision of Christ, he says, So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was utterly helpless. Isaiah. Isaiah says the same thing in Isaiah 6. He's, he's ushered into the throne room of God. And all he can say is, woe is me. I'm unclean. I'm ruined. And I live amongst a people who are unclean and ruined. Because my eyes, they've seen the king. John describes it in Revelation. He says, I saw him, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and I fell down like a dead man. And then you get to Revelation chapter 5, and and John's weeping, and he's saying, all right, who's worthy to open up the scroll? Who can open it up? And I'm going to tell you something. John, in his previous life, Paul, in his previous life as a Pharisee, would have said, I'm worthy. I'm worthy. I can do it. And he's just weeping. Who's worthy? See, I don't know if the author actually of of, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde actually named Hyde for this reason, but I think it's a great name because our Hyde likes to hide, doesn't he? I mean, Hyde likes to remain hidden. This goes all the way back to the very beginning, Adam and Eve. They hid, says the text. Who were they hiding from? Well, of course they were hiding from God, but they were also hiding from themselves. And it wasn't their nakedness that they were trying to cover. Because they had always been naked. They still are naked. What they're trying to cover at this this moment is their hide. And people have been hiding ever since. Hide hides. Now what I find really interesting, going back to verses 7 through 13, where Paul... I mean, in these verses, I think Paul kind of sees himself as blameless, this Torah-keeping Pharisee. Probably all he does is think about his good self. Look how good I am. Look how righteous I am. He was proud of himself. He was consumed with himself. He was fixated on himself. Yet what he couldn't see was this proud, self-centered Mr. Hyde beneath it all. He didn't want to see it. He couldn't bear to see it. But this is what I find interesting, that as a Torah keeper, I think he could look at the Torah for the most part and feel pretty good about himself. So, you know what, I can do this. But he says there's one law that kind of pierced his self-righteous armor and it slew him. He said, it killed me. What law was that? It's right there in the text. It's the Tenth commandment you shall not covet. So I asked myself this week, why this law? Well, I think because all the other laws were kind of behavioral, Paul could look at those laws and say, "You know what? I can keep these. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't committed adultery. I'm a pretty good son. I honor my parents. I don't have any graven images in my house. But see, this last commandment deals with one's heart. It gets at one's motives. Because coveting is more than wanting. Wanting isn't bad. God gave us wants and desires. But it's this idolatrous kind of wanting. It's not just wanting bad things, but it's wanting things too badly. In fact, then I looked at the word in the Greek, and I couldn't believe what I found. For those of you who were here two weeks ago, you know what word it is? Epithumia. That's the word for covet in Greek. Thumia, of course, is the word for desire. Epi is the word for over. This is this inordinate desire that we have not just for bad things but sometimes for good things that leads to bad coveting is when I want something more than I want God coveting is when my heart says God you're not enough I need this this and this Coveting is when my heart says, I need to have this to feel like I'm secure. I need to get this so that I feel like I'm worth something. I need to get this so I can really be satisfied. That's coveting. And so then when you start looking, because coveting really is the sin beneath all sin. I mean, why do you get angry? Why are you anxious? Why are you bitter? Why are you jealous right now? It's because you covet. In fact, what's the opposite of coveting? It's contentment. Are you content right now? Are you utterly content with your life? Are you utterly content with your circumstances? Contentment is being able to say in any and every situation, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. See, in what Paul says, it's this law in particular, do not covet. This is the one that smote him, this is the one that killed him, because underneath all his goodness, there was this self-righteousness, this self-importance, this self-centeredness, this self-absorption, this this need to be better than everybody else. Exposed how he was driven, but never satisfied. How he could achieve so much, but it was never enough. How his self-righteousness was really just a form of this self-serving rebellion that was in him. And he saw Mr. Hyde. Can you see yours? can you see that there are two ways to be self-centered and self-absorbed? Of course, one is by being a very bad rule breaker. We see that thing a thousand miles away. But another way to be self-centered and self-absorbed is by being a very good self-righteous Pharisee. So what's the remedy? The remedy is not through the law. And self effort and willpower and self flagellation and trying harder. In fact, that's one of the main points of this text. The law, it's good, it's righteous, it's spiritual, but the law is powerless. To save us. It's powerless to change us. In fact, it doesn't beat the sin out of us. It only makes the sin in us that much stronger. I mean, look at what he says in verse 5. He says the, the sinful passions that are aroused by the law. The law actually has this greenhouse effect on my sinful self. Because there's something about our hearts That when the law says don't, what does their heart say? Do. I see this with my kids. We're all at the table. This is years ago. Banging the fork. Don't bang your fork. Bang the fork. Don't bang the fork, you're getting a spanking. Bang the fork. Spanking number one, bang the fork. I'm like, You're f- why, are you, why are you so dumb? And now it's like, <laughs> you guys know as parents, once you pick a battle, baby, you got to win that thing, right? Even if it means 10 spankings. And after 10 spankings, I know it's just my kids, pastor's kids, Right. No, because deep inside of our hearts, our hearts hate being told what to do. And that's why trying harder, following the rules, exercising our willpower, it's never going to change us. It's always going to be a losing battle, always. So what's the remedy? We know. It's Christ. The answer is, 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 is throwing myself into Christ. It's, it's bringing Christ and his gospel into the center of my life. Because once I do this, I go from fighting a losing battle to fighting a winning battle. And what the gospel does. And this is why Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power to justify us. It's the power to heal us. It's the power to change us. It's the power to sanctify us. The gospel. And see what the gospel is, and this is why it's so freeing. It's not my righteousness. It's his righteousness. It's not my performance. It's Christ's performance. It's not my resume. It's Christ's resume. And I just like a desperate person throw myself in it. And now listen to me on this. I don't bring Christ into my life so that now I can try harder. I bring Christ into my life to convert me. And now listen to this. If you don't hear anything else this morning, because we are in West Michigan, where we are probably one of the most religious people, Pharisaical people on the face of the earth. The first thing the gospel converts is not my bad self. It has to convert my good self. It has to convert the good me. The religious me. Because I am more convinced than ever before that there is more sin, hideous sin, that lies under the good me than under the bad me. And see, the bad me, you guys can see a thousand miles away and even I can see it. But the sin that underneath the good me, you can't see it. It's all covered up. And I can't see it either. But unexposed sin, it's potent. And I think some of you who are saved need to get unsaved. Before you can be saved, because you're saved, it's still all about you and you being good and your righteousness and your performance. Get unsaved, it's not about you. You know what this is about? It's the gospel. You know what the gospel is? It's so beautiful in verses 24 and 25. It starts with this, being able to say, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. That before you, God, when I see your face shining like the sun, I fall so short. I'm helpless. And I'm desperate. I mean, Jesus told the parable. He said, you know, there's, there's this Pharisee and he comes into the temple to pray and he just says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this person and I'm not like this group of people and all the bad people out there. But he said, this, this Pharisee, is this tax collector, he couldn't even look to heaven. He got on his knees, he just beats his breast. Lord, have mercy on me, When's the last time you wept and said, Oh, what a wretched man that I am? When's the last time you beat your breasts? David prayed the prayer that I think is a gutsy prayer Oh, God, search my heart. Test me and try me. See if there's anything wicked or offensive in my heart. Pray that prayer. See, the gospel is us being able to say, Oh, what a wretched man that I am. It's it, it's knowing that apart from Christ, that we're wretched. And then it moves to this whole who's gonna rescue me? Because we come to this point of desperation where we see who he who he is, who we are in light of him. And we're, we're like, I can't rescue me. I can't save me. I can't change me. But we see who can. And we see him. And we see Christ. And we see, we see how Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my resume. Christ is my performance. Christ, Christ, Christ. And you know what that leads me to? Thanks be to God. <laughs> thank you. And my whole life then is, is just a big thank you to God. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind. But now I see. Thank you. And the more I grow in Him, the more I see His holiness. And the more I see my sinfulness, and I see cross and Christ, and I'm just grateful. You see that Jesus did what you could never do? Do you really see and know that he lived the life that you were supposed to live, but you can't live it? I mean, the Bible says he came and he took on flesh. He took on sarks, And blow by blow, he lived that life and he never gave in. He lived a perfect life. And then he ended it all by dying on that cross. And he didn't just die to say, look how much I love you. He died the death that you and I deserve to die He became sin. He became Mr. Hyde. He became all of our Mr. Hydes so we could become the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. And see, his victory, his victory is our victory. It's like David that one day when he defeated Goliath. David, as one man, went down that hill. He slew him. And the whole Israelite army, they got to participate in that victory. Same with Christ. He slew them. And now we just get to participate in it. And here's the deal. If you want to change, don't you come to Christ through the gospel of, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But thanks be to God. And then leave that to yourself. Now, I'm Gonna make myself good, and I'm gonna sanctify myself, and I got all these techniques that I'm gonna apply. No, don't leave this. Don't leave it. You never leave the cross. You never have. You never leave the shadow of the cross. You never stop clinging to it. Take your eyes off yourself. Fix your eyes on him. And now I'm stepping into Romans 8, but I don't care. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim. Even your Mr. Hyde in the light, in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Blessed are the poor, the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritual beggars, for they will inherit the kingdom of God. Show us our poverty, O God unsave us if we need to be unsaved and show us the riches of your grace and glory in Jesus and through Jesus, our Lord.